Welcome everyone to the next edition of Conversations with the Code 9 Foundation. I'd like to welcome uh, today Sergeant Stuart Charlesworth from Greater Manchester Police. Good morning Manchester time, Stewie. Hey, good morning. It's 9am uh, or 10 past 9 on, on a typical rainy Manchester day. <laughs> I re- really appreciate your time, mate. And um, uh, I was introduced to you uh, during my Churchill Fellowship back in 2018 by Sergeant mm-hmm. Martin Lally, who the listeners will probably remember I spoke to a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, you've been good enough to agree to talk to us about a few things this morning, um, including your mental health journey after uh, you attended a critical incident back in 2012, which is probably fair to say um, every police officer would dread to attend. Um, you're also a, a fellow Churchill fellow, which I always find hard to say. Um, and, and if it wasn't for COVID, Stewie, you probably would have already been out here and spent some time with me and had a look around Victoria Police, wouldn't yeah. you? Um, yeah, everything's on hold, unfortunately, Greg. We'll get you out here. Um, but we really appreciate your time, mate. And look, before we go on, I just want to um, point out to the listeners that, um, you know, before we go on, I think it's appropriate time now just to warn all our listeners that, but the, you know, there may be parts of our conversation that we have during this podcast that um, may activate some triggers and emotions in some of our listeners. And I just ask that they access their self-coping strategies and, and utilise any support services that they have access to and they know that, that assist them. So for anyone out there that um, might find some of this hard listening to, just make sure that you look after yourself. All right, Stewie, let's get let's get going. Um, to start us off, I suppose, a bit of an icebreaker fashion, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your policing career to date? Yeah, of course I can. Um, right, I've got uh, just over 25 years uh, service in with the Greater Manchester Police. Uh, started in September 1995, uh, working on the response teams on the Stockport District. Uh, did this for about five years and then moved into the Divisional Plain Clothes Unit for about three years. Um, but I think my days of sitting in vans in winter with a camera uh, are long gone. I think I might be getting too old for that. It's definitely a young <laughs> man's game, that, if anyone's thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, following this, I then worked in the duty unit, which allowed me to do frontline work, but also tutoring new officers uh, on, in the field. And I, I really enjoyed that. It was quite a rewarding time in my career, that. Uh, and whilst I was doing that, I was in more of a supervisory role, and then I thought, I want to take my sergeant's uh, exam. So I did that a couple of years later, uh, was successful, um, and got promoted in 2008. Um, so once we got promoted, it was my decision to move off the district, and then I moved to Tameside, uh, which was a neighbouring one on the outskirts of Greater Manchester. Um, started on the, as a sergeant on the response team for about a year. Uh, moved into the custody office, and then in 2011, I moved into the neighbourhood policing teams, uh, which is where I've stayed ever since, under its various name changes. And uh, But, yeah, that's what I'm doing now, neighbourhood policing sergeant. So when you say a neighbourhood policing sergeant, what's your actual role there, Stewie? Yeah, so you're more involved with uh, more longer problem-solving um, issues, and you're dealing more with partners, so you're working alongside housing, social services. So whereas on the response teams, you would respond to the initial job, you will deal with it, and then you will go on to the next one. Uh, and if it is a longer-term problem, that will come to me, and I, me and my team would look at how can we deal with this, uh, and are the police the best people to deal with it, or can we work alongside the housing authority or social services, that sort of thing. And when you say your team, what? how many staff is your team made up of? 
Yeah, with my team now, I've got uh, five neighbourhood police officers and I've got uh, four police community support officers, which are basically civilian staff. Um, I don't know whether you have the, the equivalent over there on you, in, with yourselves, um, but they, they were brought in a few years ago, um, and they're supposed to be more the, like the eyes and the ears of the community. So they get out a bit more in the community and do sort of meetings and things, uh, and they're, they're the sort of the initial link between the police um, and the community that we're serving. Yeah, I know uh, when I was both in Manchester with you and Lels and then um, when I was down in London with the Met Police and that, because they have the community policing officers as well, so they're, um, they're just volunteers, are they, or do they get paid? Oh, no, they get paid. Uh, yeah, they're salaried, uh, salaried officers like everyone else. Okay. Now, yeah. um, I know the answer to this, and most Australian coppers probably know it, but you guys... Um, perform your duties unarmed or you don't carry firearms or anything do you no we don't carry firearms we have a um, specialist firearms team so if there is a, an incident involving a firearms um they they will then come to and assess that and they'll ultimately deal with it but as a rule we don't carry firearms we carry um well we've just been issued with harbor spray we used to have cs spray uh, but that's as far as we go and how do you as an operational police officer you and what your colleagues do you um do you, are you comfortable with that, responding to critical incidents and that without being armed with a firearm? Yeah, I think me personally I am because I think we've, that's all I've known. Um, so if, you know, you, you never know what, what job you're going to go to or what's going to be waiting for you when you get there. Um, but the firearms, the firearms laws in the UK are very, very strict, so there's not a lot of them out there. Um, so the chances of you actually coming across it are quite slim, and I know these things do happen. Um, but generally, the, the issues we, we face, um, the violence, are, are, are generally knives, I think. Yeah, okay. Um, and did you, so 25 years, um, what did you do before you joined uh, Greater Manchester Police? I worked at um, I worked in a dairy of all things, um, <laughs> so I was out delivering milk at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and again, again, Greg, that is a young man's game. There's no way I could do it now. <laughs> and was poli- was policing an ambition of yours as you were a young kid and going through school? Yeah, I think I always wanted to join the police. My uh, my granddad served with Liverpool City Police for over thirty years, um, and I think that has always been my thing. Uh, so I think I had a lot of influence, even probably without me realising it. Um, so it was always one of those things. I thought about doing it and then didn't, and I thought, you know what, I actually want to do this. Um, so I made the decision to to apply, and um, and got through. So it, it, yeah, everything I wanted to do. Uh, very good. Now, uh, just a little bit around your personal life. You're married. You got kids. You got a family or anything like. Uh, married, no children, but I've got um, two husky dogs. Yep. Uh, they keep me busy enough. So yeah, so it's all good. Live out in the countryside, so go walking every day with them. Yeah. Keeps me fit. Is your wife a police officer? Yes, she's uh, she's a police inspector in the um, in the city of Manchester. So so, so she's. So, yeah, she's higher than me, but I don't call her boss, even though she is the boss anyway. Well, that's what I was going to say. So she's the boss at home and the boss at work. <laughs> yes, that's the one. Yeah, you know where I'm coming from. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right, thanks for that, mate. Um, now, look, um, the next question is what um, I mentioned before about you know the, the guys and girls that are listening to um, consider their self-coping strategies. And I know we spent some, okay. to- some time talking about it when I met you, and I know you, you know, a lot of your work nowadays focuses around you doing some a lot of presentations to other police officers and organizations around your experience but 
Um, you know, I suppose this is the incident that you probably say started you on your mental health journey. Um, yes, I would say so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it was a horrific incident back in September 2012 when essentially two of your team, Constables Nicola Hughes and Fiona Bone, um, were ambushed and murdered when they were on duty. Yes. Um, yes. I, I, don't, I don't want you to go into too much detail, Stewie, but can you just share a little bit of um, what sort of led to you being uh, where you've been over the last few years? Yeah, of course I can. Yeah, so like you say, it was um, it was the 18th of September in 2012, and I was the covering sergeant on that shift. Um, it was just a normal day. We paraded everyone on as normal. We're having a bit of a laugh in the morning, as you do. Who's was going to do what? What they're doing for the weekend? All that sort of talk. Um, and then obviously the call came in. Um, what that it was a it was a false call by the by the person who did it. Uh, reported a burglary, and then when the officers went. When Nicola and Fionn went to the door, he opened the door and basically executed them. So I was one of the attending officers at the scene, and it was—I'm it, not going to describe it because obviously it's—I think probably everyone can guess what it was like. Um, but it, it genuinely took it out of me. You know, it was—it was so surreal. You know, is this really happening? And then in the sort of following sort of weeks, I don't really think anyone knew what to do. Um, so I think we've talked about this before, Greg. I didn't really get any support in the beginning, and I, th- I genuinely think the force didn't know how to handle it. Um, and again, I wasn't particularly up for any help because I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. Uh, the force never pushed it. Um, so I knew there was an occupational health unit available, but I didn't really think it. Was, again, didn't really think it was for me. There was a number of reasons for that, Greg. Um, I thought, well, I'm the sergeant, I'm the team leader, I need to be the strong one here, I'm supposed to be the one to helping people out. Um, and I, I had what I called uh, events. So I thought, basically timelines, because my thinking was, I knew there was something not quite right, but I thought, well, once we get the, the sort of anniversaries out of the way, so once the funerals were done, I'd be fine. Once the court case was done, I'd be fine. Uh, you know, the, you know, the one-year anniversary, etc. And I thought once once they were out of the way, then I'll, I'll you know get myself back on track. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't, and I just kept getting worse over the next couple of years. Yeah, and that uh, it really resonates with me when you mention it. You know, I'm the sergeant. I'm meant to be the strong one. Now that's you yeah, know that, yeah. that, that that's a feeling that you had yourself. But I sort of get the impression too that when from a community perspective, you sort of feel like you owe that to the community as well as as your colleagues, don't you? Because they're you know what they perceive as you know this bloke's meant he's got all the pips on his shoulders or the stripes on his arm did you feel that yes and again because you you think you know you're you're the leader here and people come to you to solve their problems so I, i sort of tried to make myself busy in a way you know you know looking at other people's problems and i was taking stuff on really and what i was doing i was just distracted from myself um, but the way I was thinking at the time, I thought, well, I'm the sergeant. I need to be the strong one here. I can't seem to be. And the, the perception was at the time for me, I can't be seen to be weak. Yeah. And I think um, obviously there's a, there's a lot of stigma around. And uh, that's, not, that's not just for that incident, but I think that's just a general police culture as well. Um, so I think that had a massive impact on me getting any help as well. So that stigma, what, what sort of role do you think that stigma played in in your health, Stu, or your, you know, your lack of want to seek help. What, what did yeah. you feel? What, yeah. what? Describe us what that stigma did and what it is. Yeah, I think um, I don't know. I don't think this is unique to to certainly the, the police in the UK, and I'm, I'm sure it's you know it's it's across the board. 
Um, but I think there's definitely a culture of just, you know, just getting on with things. You know, I've heard phrases like, you know, well, that's the job or it's what we do. And I'm still hearing phrases even in the last couple of months like man up or grow up her. Um, which, you know, if they, you know that, that's, that, that's it's just wrong for me. It's just wrong, but it does affect you and probably subconsciously it affects you as well, which stops you getting the help that you need. Um, and I think that as police officers, we see and deal with a, th- a lot of things that most people have never experienced in their life. And it's like I've always said, Greg, I think, you know, yeah, it is the job that we deal with, but that doesn't mean that you can't be affected by it. You know, at the end of the day, we're, we're still people, we're still human beings behind that uniform and behind that badge. Um, and I think there's another side to it as well. And I, you know, I've did a sort of looked into this quite a lot, really, because I thought, why, why did, why is this stopping me getting the help? And I think when, as police officers, we're the ones that people call when they need help. And I think for for an officer or a police staff member, all of a sudden the roles are reversed. And I think I, I genuinely think it's quite alien for us because we think, oh, hang on a minute, we, you know, we're the problem solvers here, and yeah, yeah. it's us who need help. So yeah. it's, you know, it's it's a bit alien for them. We're not used to it. Um, I was speaking to another police officer about six months ago, uh, and they said, and I'd never really thought about this, but uh, I know it's out there, but he said there's a concern that, you know, you might be seen as weak or not even up to being a police officer anymore. Um, And I've always said, well, that's fine, but you just need to take that bit of a step back, you know, show a bit of compassion to yourself, get that bit of help that you need just to get get you back to with, you know, the person that you were before. Um, but we don't tend to do. We tend to look after everyone else when we, we sort of put ourselves last, really, if at all. And I suppose that also stands uh, true, doesn't? When you go back to the conversation we had before about you being the sergeant, as as a leader, um, not only do you need to be healthy and in your best shape to do your job yeah. to lead, but um, leading by example by being um, proactive and getting early yeah. intervention is another form of leadership, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah, because you need to be seen as almost the strong one who people can turn to. Um, and all, like I say, if, if if you're that person who's being seen as weak or that's your perception of it, you think, well, how can I do my job? So if you cast your mind back, Stu, before that, that incident, let's say, and um, we sort of, you sort of agreed before that this is what started you on your mental health journey. So if we go back yeah. before that day, yeah. how, how often would you or your colleagues or would you hear of any of your colleagues having any conversations about asking each other how you were how you're traveling like was it a common thing for you to check in on people from a psychological perspective or was it just like taboo and we don't talk about it because of the culture i i think i yeah i've been asked this before Greg, and you know i want to think back i can't think of any sort of specific instance where we've said you know we've sat down are we okay we've have we done this um and i have been to some you know traumatic incidents over the years as, as, a, as a lot of police officers have um and when i sat down there was one in particular um and we've talked about doing statements for the court case and various other things um and one of the officers says right is everyone all right yeah and that's fine and they said right get yourself a brewing and get home and that's how it was it was just like crack on with it um, but I can't think of any any specific instance where we actually sat down and talked about it because you, you just didn't do it. Yeah, and I know one of the, one of the best analogies I think I've heard about. You know, you hear people say, um, you know, if someone comes to work after breaking their leg, you know, people will open doors for them and offer to pick them up and bring yeah. them into work. And generally, their fridges and their freezers are full of lasagnas and cakes and all yeah. that. But it, but if someone at your workplace is off work with a mental health injury, it's almost like we're, we're scared that it's contagious and we don't even go and see them. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because you you know you don't know what to, you don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. Um, whereas I think talking about it is is the best thing you can do. Yeah, absolutely. Do you at the time how how well did you know Nicola and Fiona Stewie? Yeah, I knew them uh, as as colleagues, uh, so I got on with them well. But didn't really know each other outside of work. Um, but I, and I've talked to other sergeants about this as well. And you're probably the same, Greg, in your position. Um, I think as a sergeant, you almost take on a parental role, um, and you sort of you know you want to look after your staff as best you can. Absolutely. Um, so it, it was it was that, it was definitely a sergeant BC relationship, but you know you you still want to sort of look after them as best you can. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned after in the days after the incident, sort of no one really knew what to do. No. Um, what what sort of wellbeing services and support uh, did GMP Greater Manchester Police? What did they make available to you and other employees in light of the incident from a support and wellbeing perspective? Yeah, I think the only thing that I can remember, and there's, again, this is only my perception of it, um, was you know you, you can get referred to occupational health. Um, they had the, the the chaplaincy who uh, were there, um, but. It's, it's, it's a bit different in the UK from what of, you know, when I'm speaking to yourself and other officers and certainly in the US as well, uh, the chaplaincy in the UK, they're, they're not really seen as, you know, helpful and it's not someone that you would go to. Um, and I've heard comments like, well, I'm not religious, so why would I go and speak to them? Well, so it's, it's not really about that. You know, they can offer help. You know, they've got vast experience over the years. Um, so, I mean, that's another thing I'll be looking at later on down the line, which is obviously I want to, want to speak to yourself uh, possibly next year when I get over. Um, but I think the only thing that was made available to you or they said was could help you was at the Occupational Health Unit, and that's basically what they said, and that was it. I know, um, you know we've got quite a vast, in Victoria Police, got a quite a vast... Um, chaplaincy unit Um, and I know when you speak to our full-time chaplains that's one of the things that they always say is initially from a stigma perspective um, people don't want to speak to the chaplains because they think I don't I'm not religious Um, he's gonna he's gonna walk he's gonna walk in with a bible and he's gonna want to sit down and pray (laughs) with us yeah. <laughs> but although they do obviously have that part of a role that they can opt, but they, they're nothing like that. They're more just, a, uh, you know, another person to sit down and support you. And because they they work in that sort of field, um, they're just general. They're just another form of support, aren't they? Yeah, of course they are. Yeah, yeah. And that, like I said, and that's one of, one of the things I want to I want to speak to yourself and your, you know your units when you get there to say how is that ex- more acceptable? You know, how have yeah. you managed to do that? So. Um, in the hours after the incident, Stewie, you mentioned that you know there wasn't, um, you know, wasn't really much available. So there was no, apart from your occupational health, did, did anyone specifically respond in person to provide support to all the employees that have been exposed to that tragedy, or is it all left up to yourself to self-generate that? Yeah, the, uh, in the in the hours after it, um, everyone went to the sort of divisional headquarters at the time, um, and they had the you know the the bosses there, and they had the occupational health unit. They were already there, and people turned up. But I think it it just seemed too much in one go because I think people were still trying to comprehend what had gone on, uh, and they weren't in a position to sort of speak to anyone, um, you know, about what what they were going through because. I'll be honest with you, Greg, and myself, I didn't, you know, it was one of those things I thought, has this actually happened, even though I'd been there and I'd seen it? 
Um, and then it just seemed to sort of filter out a bit, really. Um, and if you, you know, if you said you wanted the help, then you, you know, you'd be referred. And if you, you know, if you didn't push it or you just carried on, then you were just left to your own devices, really. And I, I don't think that was the fault of anyone. I genuinely don't think, like I said before, I, don't, I just don't think they knew what to do with us. Yeah. Has have things um, changed for the better in GMP in that respect since yeah. those years? Yeah. So what would if yeah, it, I, I was. Yeah, sorry to cut you off then, Greg. Was, I, we I, now have the, um, you, you know, the, the trim officers, yes. uh, the trauma risk management, uh, which we never had at the time in 2012. Um, so if there is any, any, you know, incident, whether it doesn't matter how traumatic it is or what type of thing it is, um, they will come down and they will speak to you. And it's not your normal how you feel and it's almost, you know, what you're thinking about. And they will do an assessment on you, you know, a couple of weeks after the incident. Because what they say is that, you know, you need a couple of weeks for you body to naturally sort of comprehend it and try and get your head around stuff um so they will come down do a bit of an assessment on you and if they think that you need the help they will basically fast track you into the system so there's and that's becoming more acceptable um and obviously we've got the we've now got the peer support network um so if you didn't want to go down the sort of official route you know you'd have someone there who you could speak to uh, very similar to your code nine foundation from what you you told me before um so we, we are getting there it's just taking a bit longer than you know, I, I would like to see it yeah. um, take, but we, we are getting we're on the right track. That's oh, good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah. So, so, what were the first signs for you, Stewie, in the days and weeks after, or however? What were the first signs that you picked up that hey, I'm actually not okay here. I think this has affected me. Yeah, um, well, I think that the main one for me was um, lack of sleep patterns. Um, I, you know, I was. I wanted to sleep at stupid hours in the day. Um, I was staying awake all night. Um, I had some horrendous mood swings as well, really bad, uh, from manically high, I would say, to depressively low. Uh, and that could be like in, so, you know, in the same day. Um, I had a lot of flashbacks as well. Um, they were quite strange, really. I couldn't really understand why they were happening because you, you, you have your conscious triggers, like there might be a news report or somebody might be talking about it. Uh, but most of the time, there was no obvious reasons why I, was, I, I could see anyway why I was having these flashbacks. So that was all going on. Um, and just going back to the sleep thing, I mean, this, the, you, if when you read about sleep, you don't realise how important it is until you actually start losing it. Um, but I was having some horrendous nightmares, and I think that was contributing to me to, to my lack of sleep because basically I didn't want to go to sleep um, because I thought if I do, I'm going to have nightmares. And my thinking at the time was, well, if I'm not asleep, I'm not going to have nightmares, which is true. <laughs> yeah. um, but obviously, you can't sustain that for any length of time. Um, so, and there was other things as well, you know, I, I called them down days where I felt numb all the time, wasn't really bothered whether I lived or died. So I had no value on my own life and started thinking, you know, was anyone else be bothered? So I had quite a distorted view on life and couldn't really see the importance of it. Um, and it, you know, I started thinking, well, does it matter whether you're alive or dead? I just couldn't see any difference in it. So there, there was these sort of things that were building up and building up. But like I said, I just kept ignoring them, kept, kept myself busy. You know, I was taking on more than I should have. Um, and really what I should have done is just took a step back and said, right, hang on a minute. Why are these things happening now? Why am I doing this? Why is this happening? I need some help. But I didn't. And it was only four years later, um, basically a breakdown that forced me to get into help. Wow, four years, it's a long time to not have good yes. sleep and not have yeah. good diet and all that, isn't it? Yes, exactly, yeah. And when I look back, I think, you know, I was an absolute mess. 
uh, not only for me, but for the people around me. Mm. Um, and it's funny because when I, when I said um, I, I spoke to my boss and I said, "Look," and I said, "This is what's going on. I'm, I'm going to get I'm going to get some help." And um, I said, oh, "You know, I think I might be suffering with this, that, and the other." And the first thing she said was, "No shit." She said, "Are you?" <laughs> she said, "Are you the only person who couldn't see it?" She said, "We've been telling you and telling you, but you've not been listening." I said, "Have you?" I said, "I don't remember." Yeah. So, and that, and that's how it was. So. Um... What was the main reason, Stewie, that you think back in that four-year period, what was the main reason that you didn't go and seek help? What was preventing you from doing that? Well, I think it goes right back to the start of the conversation, Greg. I think it was the whole, you know, I'm the sergeant, I've got to carry on, I've got to be here, I've got to be seen to be strong, I'm the problem solver. Uh, and I think that coupled with the fact that the police culture uh, not being seen as weak, you know, is it going to affect me career prospects in any way? Uh, and I think that's what I did. I just, and I just had those, whether it was conscious or subconscious, but I just cracked on with it. And obviously it wasn't doing me any good at all. Yeah. Is there... At the time, firstly, Stewie, at the time or even when you went through the academy and all that, is there or was there any education for you officers at all at any stage around mental health and what it looks like and what the symptoms are, etc. at all? No, there was none. Absolutely none. And what about um, now? Well, that, that's changed now because as I'm, I'm one of the peer supporters myself now, so I'm in that group within the Greater Manchester Police. So when the new students come through, uh, they have like a bit of an open day, um, and we will be one of the people there, and we give them talks and what's available. Uh, and it's really good because you'd be surprised how many people actually say, well, do you know what? I'm glad you're here because I suffered with this. So even the new cops who haven't even started, really, uh, they're actually opening up about their own mental health problems, and they're quite happy to talk about it. Whereas I think when... We had, probably when we started, if you had said that, that you'd have been questioned, that, you know, is this job for you? Yes, definitely. Um, so we are we're definitely going in the right direction and the new students are getting that input at a very early stage as well. So apart from the, the stigma, having just spoken about that education piece, Stewie, apart from the stigma, do you think there's an element too that you didn't actually know what was causing you to lose sleep and if you had have been better educated about what these sort of things mean that you might have been a bit more proactive? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because I've, I've spoken to people about this and they've said, oh, do you know what? I'm actually, that's some of the things too I'm going through. And then luckily they've gone on to get help, you know, whereas if, if, I hadn't, if they hadn't said anything, if, I hadn't sort of, if they hadn't recognised in themselves, uh, they'd have probably just gone down the same route as me, just getting worse and worse without even realising it. And did you find as you were going through those four years that it started to have an impact at home as well? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, uh, and when I look when I look back now, I, I just I just feel so bad. Genuinely, I do feel bad about it. Um, but there's nothing I can do now. Um, whereas, obviously, if there's anything, we'd, if anything, I mean, I was lucky. My, my partner's in the job, uh, so and understood what went on on the day and the, you know the subsequent years after. Um, so there was a good understanding there, and I'd, I'd probably just give me a lot, quite a lot of leeway, really, I would say. Um, whereas now that we're, we're so much closer now because we just talk about everything. Um, whereas before, I, you know, I, if anything went wrong, um, I was quite happy to blame everyone and let them know about it as well. When a lot of the time yeah. it was down to me. Yeah. And it's an interesting um, discussion around having a partner that's in the same service as you, whether it's been a two police family, two fire family, two emergency call taker family or whatever. Yeah. I, I know sometimes the culture in policing is that 
when you finish work, you don't want to talk about work, so you don't want to speak to your family about it. And that I even find personally find that the case with my family, even though my wife's in the police force as well. Yeah. That you don't want to come home and burden them with talking about your work all day anyway. So you end up just carrying the burden yourself because you don't feel like you want to share it. Yeah, and that's true. No, you, you couldn't put it any better. Couldn't put it any better. Yeah. Um, four years. What was it at the around about the four year mark when you decided to go and get help eventually? What was it, Stewie? You think that made the the light go off inside that said I have to go and do something? Yeah, well, I know exactly what it was, Greg. Um, the the incident itself, itself in 2012 uh, was going to be possibly subject to a, uh, a full review uh, in court. Um, so everyone who was there on the day, so including myself, so in, from the, the day it happened to the subsequent weeks and months later, uh, was all going to be subject to a review where I would have had to stand up in court. Um, and it was then that I realised, I thought, all this stuff that I've been trying to hide and suppress, I, I can't do it anymore because I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to open up now and tell everyone, you know, what happened and speak about it. And the more I thought about it, that I, I got more anxious. I couldn't breathe, um, and basically just had a breakdown. Just had a breakdown. Yeah. And it was that point really that I thought this can't go on. You know, I'm not well. Uh, I thought I was, but basically I've just been kidding myself, uh, and I need help. And what what was it that you actually? Did to go and get help. What what did that look like? Well, um, I referred myself to the occupational health unit. I don't know what, what it's like um, for yourselves, but uh, within GMP, if you're suffering with any mental trauma, then you don't have to go via your supervisor. Uh, you can actually self-refer uh, to the occupational health unit. Um, I could have gone by my inspector, um, but I chose to do it myself because it was like an acknowledgement, really. Seeing my name on that piece of paper, uh, it was an acknowledgement for me that I needed that help. Um, once I put the form through, uh, I was quite happy to speak to my inspector, told him everything and that, you know, um, the reasons why I'd not gone through them. I said, well, I'm quite happy to speak to you. I'll let you know everything that goes on. Um, but basically, I wanted, you know, I wanted to do it myself. And I've always said um, that was probably the hardest thing I've had to do. And it's probably the hardest thing anyone's going to have to say is, is, you know, is say that word help. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you what do you credit, Stewie, for or what are some of the important things you think that you did that really turned your health around? I think the, the main one for me uh, was talking. Um, I, I was referred to the welfare officer within a couple of days um, and then following that, I had to go and see a CBT therapist. Mm -hmm. So what we did basically with them was just talk about the incident and just broke it down into small pieces and, you know, why am I thinking this and what happened here, why you thought, why you thought processes are like that. Um, but not only did I talk about it there, I talked about it to, you know, to my, to my wife, uh, to my inspector, uh, to other peer supporters as well. And what I found was, Greg, that the, the more I talked about it, the easier it became and it gave me some sort of control over it. Uh, so rather it just sneaking up on me, um, I had the control. I was deciding when I was going to talk about it and when I was going to deal with it. Um, I'm not going to lie, Greg, it's not easy. Uh, and yeah. I did get upset on a number of occasions over it. But what I did find is that the more that you talk about it, the more it normalises it. And it sort of lessens the impact of, you know, the memories we're having on me. And that's not to take away, you know, the, the importance of it or it doesn't, you know, doesn't sort of reduce it in any way. 
But the trauma memories after, the more I talk about it, it sort of lessens the impact it was having on my day-to-day life. And that um, normalising it is so important, I think, in the reduction of that stigma. Yes, yeah. It's one thing that I really focus on in my workplace is making it every day, as often as we can, we'll just generally in the workplace just talk about mental health in some capacity so it normalises the conversation yeah. So, yeah. When, so when it comes to when it comes to we've got to get our game faces on, something's happened here. People don't hesitate to talk about it because it's something they've got used to because we're doing it daily. Yes, of course. Yeah. No, you're right. You're exactly right. And I think that's you know I'm trying to sort of get that across to my team as well. So if they can see me as their sort of sergeant, and you know I'm quite happy to talk about the issues that I've gone through, then what I've found is people will talk to you a lot more. Absolutely. You know, they'll open up a lot more, which is good, which is good. You know, they're not taking it, you know, they're not keeping it to themselves. Uh, they're not taking it home with them. They're actually getting it out there, like you say, and it, it, it's good. It's all positive. And what, what things do you really concentrate on doing now, Stewie, that enables you to remain psychologically healthy? Yeah, I, t- I try um, not to uh, dwell too much on the past. Um, it's still something that I think about every day, you know, to, to some extent, whether it's a fleeting thought or it's something that, you know, I think, well, you know, let's have a think about this. But rather than suppress it, I think, well, OK, well, why am I thinking about this now? What's the issues here? So I'll sit down when I've got my own time and I think, right, OK, well, we thought about that. That upset me. Why was that? And then just, you know, just doing that. Um, physical wise which I think helps you mentally anyway like I said before I live in the countryside I've got two dogs that I take out every day and that just helps massively so luckily I'm quite physically fit uh, so I can get out and do that Um, but the the mental side of it I just don't ignore anything anymore so if if there's something affecting me I'll try and deal with it as best I can and if I can't deal with it myself then I'll ask for help I genuinely do ask for help and when you reflect back to you know the the years after two thousand and twelve to listening listening to you talk now about what you do and your thoughts. Wow, you've done a full hundred and eighty degree turn, haven't you? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, I just wish I'd done it sooner, Greg. I, do, I really do. Yeah, and it, which leads in perfectly to my next question is around um, early intervention. Um, what advice do you give to all those that are listening, Stewie, about? Uh, from an early inter- intervention perspective, what's your advice on for them if they find themselves in a situation where they're not feeling well? How important is early intervention and what is your advice to them? Uh, Greg, I can't stress enough the importance of early intervention and that's one of the uh, things that I want to look at when I do my research later on uh, next year. Um, if it's, it's very difficult to recognise the signs uh, and what's going on. So some of the things I talked about there um, I always say that if it's yourself, you're probably going to be the last person to see it, um, whether that's ignorance or you're trying to ignore it or whatever it is. Um, but your colleagues around you will generally see it before you do. So I always say look out for each other and try and recognise the signs. And if you do suffer with anything, seek early help. You know, whether it's via your peer support group or your co- sorry, your Code 9 foundation, um, whether it's via your occupational health unit, via your supervisor, because I think I think it's important for your supervisor because they're generally going to be the ones who you, you see most of the day. Um, so I think just go to them and say, look, this is what I'm going through. Uh, it might be nothing, but can you have a look at it and see if there's anything you can do for me? Yeah, it's great advice, great advice. Um just before we get to the last the last question, I know when I spent yeah. some, some time with you, you were telling me about and you shared with me your presentation that you do a lot of now, which you find yes. very cathartic as well. 
Um, yeah. Just from the so the listeners know a little bit about what you do. Just share the extra work that you do now that you go around and and for helping others. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I do um, a presentation on, it's called um, post-traumatic stress and it's called um, my recovery, basically. Um, so when, once I'd finished my treatment in, in 2016, 2017, uh, I wanted to try and give something back and help others who may, be in a, who may have been in a similar position to me. Um, because I know what it was like, because I thought there was, there was nothing there. So I thought, well, if, if people can see me talking about it and, you know, talking about the symptoms, etc., cetera, uh, they may recognise it in, in themselves. So um, I do, I've done a couple of these presentations across Greater Manchester Police to various departments. I've done it to the College of Police, in, and I was also invited to a, a suicide prevention conference in Germany, which I did there. Wow. Um, and, yeah, and the feedback I'm getting from it is really good. I don't really talk about the incident itself because, it's like you said, everyone knows what happened or has got an idea what happened, so I don't need to talk about that. I just need to talk about what my thought processes were, um, you know, the help that I got and what, what you know, the, what I did after it. So again, if people recognise that in themselves, they might think, Do you know what, that's me that I'm going to get help. Because when I started doing the presentations, I've had two or three people come up and say, you know, really appreciate it. And then they've gone on to get help from the Occupational Health Unit. And it's like I said before, had they not seen that, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have done it. They'd have just been going down the path that, you know, and just gradually getting worse. And I think one of the, the, the closing things that I finish off with on the presentation, Greg, is that I try and get across that it doesn't matter who you are, what your age is, what your experience is, what your rank is. If this affects you, then it's going to affect you. And I've always said, don't think just because, you know, you're the superintendent or you've got 25 years servicing that you can't be affected because that's what I did. I thought this isn't me. It can't affect me because, you know, I've got this, I'm the sergeant and that's where I went wrong and it didn't end too well for me, to yeah. be honest. So I try and get it across. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, your experience, etc. If you if you need help, you need help. And I think even just your personal story, Stewie, though, is a great example of, yes, someone can be very unwell, but if you keep persevering and you get that help, you can you can get yourself out the other side to a point where you're yes. you're at work and you're enjoying <clears throat> life and it's it's possible, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's like I said, I mean, I, I still think about this, you know, on a daily basis to, you know, to, to vary next, to varying degrees, sorry. Um, but I'm still me. I'm back to where I was. Um, and it's not took over my life. It's just part of my life now. And that's, you know, I try and use that to help others. Uh, maybe you need to make sure, mate, that you bring that presentation out with to... Uh... Out to Australia with you because I reckon. Of course, I will. Yeah, of course, I will. More than happy, more than happy to share it with whoever you want me to. With. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, mate. We'll get into the to the last question, and we've mentioned a couple of yep. times that you're you're the um, recipient of a Churchill Fellowship over there in the UK. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what your research topic is, what where you intend going, and and what your purpose is? Yeah, of course, I can. Yeah, the, the the Churchill project that I'm looking at is uh, it's entitled PTSD in policing, um, and the, the intention primarily is to look at how different forces across the world uh, deal with officers who struggle with PTSD. Um, and it's, like I said earlier on, the my, my primary aim is from early identification and any subsequent treatment. So it's more or less early intervention. You know, how do you identify those officers and what do you do with in the, in the treatment after and how quickly does that happen? 
uh, certainly within my force, um, and again, it's not criticism, it's just the way it is, uh, we, seem to, it's, we seem to wait for something to happen before we do something. Um, and it's almost like we can see that train coming towards us, but we wait for it to crash before we do something. Yeah. Whereas my view is, well, if we can see it coming, why aren't we stopping it at that stop there and doing something about it? So, and you know, speaking to yourself um, and other officers in, in America, uh, you seem to be quite a way ahead of us. And I just want to sort of, you know, do some research on what you do uh, and bring some of that good practice back and try and implement it in not only my own force, but across the UK as well. And so my intention is to travel to America um, and then so going to Fairfax County in Washington and then going with the NYPD. And then over to yourselves in in Melbourne and see what Victoria Police do. One thing I can tell you, Stewie, is that one of the best things that my Churchill Fellowship, apart from the research and all that, is the friendships you make. And, yes. And the contacts you get. You know, you're just one of you know probably twenty to thirty people that I'm going to have lifelong contact with. Um, yes. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes, they're police colleagues, but you know, it just opens so many doors for you professionally and and what I've learned around mental health and policing and mental health and you know like I never even knew before I went to my Churchill Fellowship right that you know physical health and diet and all this sort of stuff plays has so much of an impact on your psychological health yeah and the friendships and the knowledge that you pick up are just forever ongoing so you know you'll um you're one of us now, so we really look forward to having yeah. you come out here. Um, thank you very much for putting aside some of your time uh, on a Monday morning for us. No, thank you. Yeah, I'd rather say it's, it's, it's an honour to be asked to do this, Craig. It genuinely is. And, and just in case uh, some of the listeners, Stewie, would be interested in reaching out and perhaps either asking some questions of you or um, yeah. touching base. Do you have an issue with that from a, either a social media perspective or an email perspective? Uh, no, none at all, none at all. So what, what would be um, the best way to get in contact with you if anyone's listening who wants to? Yeah, probably in my uh, works email is probably the best one to get hold of me on. Um, yep. have, you got, have you got the details you can put out there, Greg, or do you want or to? You just, just um, launch into it, mate, over, uh, and if people don't get it, I can, they can always contact me, but if you just want to give yeah. us your email okay. address. Yeah, it's uh, 09351, and that's at GMP. Dot police dot uk okay can you just repeat that one time again for us yep zero nine three five one at gmp dot police dot uk beautiful thanks mate i'll um that'll be um available to everyone and hopefully if someone wants to reach out and um, have a chat to you um it might even be that you know if someone does when you come out here for your, your research we can hook you up with with a heap of yeah, people. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no problem at all. That'd be great. Now, make sure you stay safe over there. I think you guys are got a, little bit, a little bit more and COVID you, going on than us at the moment, so make sure you stay <laughs> yeah, safe. Just, just a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, do you catch up with Lels very often, Martin Lally very often? Yeah, I speak to him every couple of weeks. Yes, I do, yeah. He's doing okay. I bet you he speaks more than you do, though. <laughs> I'm saying nothing, Greg. You said that, not me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right, Stewie, thanks again um, for allowing us to share a bit of time with you. I'm sure everyone listening will have got um, something out of it that will benefit them yeah, in some way. Yeah, I hope way. so. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and 
uh, we'll we'll keep in touch. And I'm really looking forward to having you over here whenever COVID allows you to come down under. Yeah. And um, yeah, just be safe and thanks for your time. No, thank you very much. And like I said, I just hope it'll help somebody. Thanks, mate.